Welcome back to the Heather McCoy Show. Joining us on the line right now is Jerry Mander, who wrote a book recently, The Capitalism Paper Papers, Fatal Flaws in an Obsolete System. The pu- book is published by Counterpoint Press. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thank you. So happy to, to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, in the introduction of the book, you distinguish between capitalism that is practiced at a local level with small businesses and the mega chains that are involved in multiple industries within the economy. Can you explain the difference between the two uh, to our listeners? Well, I think that the, I think that they get lumped together. People say to me while I'm working, said to me while I was working on the book uh, hundreds of times, well, what about my grandfather's uh, grocery store and what about the bookstore down the street and so on? And I make clear early in the book that that's not what we're talking about here. Capitalism really, when we talk about capitalism, we really make need to make a distinction between small local businesses, uh, locally operated uh, small shops, the family run, neighborhood run, community run, that kind of thing that are not inherently a problem at all. They may behave badly in one way or another. But what we're really talking about is a large-scale global system that's also a national system that's really basically dominated by an investor class and a kind of plutocratic class, you might say. That's what the term we use today for it. Um, which absolutely has to grow. It has to, it has to maintain a certain rate of growth um, uh, uh, over 4%, actually, is the term normally used. And whether you're Obama or Putin or, uh, you know, um, Bill O'Reilly, that's all you do, that's all you want to talk about is whether the system is growing very fast. And in order to maintain that growth for the investor groups that dominate that business and are inherently part of it, um, it means using up resources at, an, at a completely unsustainable rate, we're already running into the limits of the planet very, very dangerously. Climate change is just one example. There's shortages of water, shortages of arable soil, shortages of, of fish in the ocean now. And that, that is what's driving it. It's the absolute built-in, um, unavoidable need of capital invested in business to grow or the system collapses and fails. And that's what we began to see in 2008. There's a mild recovery going on now, but it's going to happen again soon, and that's what all the economists I know say. And, um, and the distinction between the small local business and the uh, large-scale investor, investor-owned um, capitalism that dominates the world now is a very important distinction to make. And it's, and it's the latter, which is really causing the problems because it has so many built-in characteristics that are uh, fatal for the planet and for human beings eventually. Yeah, you, as you just mentioned, you write that the, you know, keep capitalism going, you need a continuous growth forever, but, you know, generally at 4% a year. Uh, at what point, um, at, why is such growth impossible to maintain at this point? Well, because the resources are being used up, the, you know, the, the, res- the, the resource base of the planet is very, very, very threatened right now. <laughs> and um, without the resources, it's impossible to sustain a manufacturing-based commodity economy. And that's been the basis of capitalism for quite a while now. So capital has to go in other directions. It has to go toward military, or it has to go toward um, derivatives, and, you know, it's money investing in money or it has to be speculating at all times in the market. And that's what all the controversy in Washington, you know, about um, that's going on now is, is really focused on, is how can you control that out-of-control, wild 
uh, investor spending so that the, the so the system can keep growing. And another very important factor is that is that is that the system itself has no controls on it. In other words, capital, a neighborhood grocery store has so the you know you have to get along with your neighbors. You have to do things the right way. You have to behave in a moral manner. Capitalism is a system which is inherently uh, amoral. That is to say, it has no it has no boundaries. It'll do anything to make more money and um, to keep growing. And if it runs out of resources, it'll try to do something else. Uh, it'll try to convert uh, uh, health care to a private system. It'll try to convert the military into private. It'll privatize whatever commons ex- still exists on the planet. So it just uses up nature at a very, very, very rapid rate. Yeah, one of the fascinating things I find about discussing capitalism, when you bring it up in conversation with people, if you have any criticism of what we have now as an economic system and actually call it by the C word, people either get frightened or in very few cases say, you know, right on. Um, it's almost like saying to a friend a few years ago or, ten, you know, 30 years ago that, you know, you have a gay son, a lot of blushing and a lot of embarrassment. Uh, why, <laughs> is, why is using the word capitalism uh, I know. Well, so that's bad? really why I wrote the book, to tell you the absolute truth, Heather. The, you know, <clears throat> the book really emerged from <clears throat> my organization is called the International Forum on Globalization. It's sort of an economic think tank. Yeah. And we, we sponsored a meeting. In 2008, just as the <coughs> excuse me, I've got a froggy in my throat, and and we had a meeting uh, in 2008 to try to discuss what was going on. We had 30 economists there, and um, of all of all stripes, it was a lot of progressive economists, uh, as well as conservative economists, as well as radical economists, and um, so you know, and the meeting was called um, uh, "Is Capitalism Soon Over." So it was just a private meeting. We wanted to talk about it for three days, and we, and, we, and, we, and we acknowledged that people just never talk about the system. They never talk about the inherent structural ingredients of capitalism that are driving it to its failure. You know, it's, it's just like any other system. It's good for a while, and then it uses itself up. It's, uh, you know, what was good in 1850 is not necessarily going to be good now. So anyway, we, we, we decided to, to do a joint statement uh, on our observations about it, and two of the economists, very good friends of mine, people, very famous economists, I'm not going to mention their names because they're friends of mine, I don't want to embarrass them, but they stood up at the end of the meeting and they said, um, well, if you guys are going to say that capitalism is in a decline and it's going to be, it's going to be ending soon, <clears throat> we, we have to leave the meeting. And you can't even say that we were at this meeting. <laughs> so we said, why? why? What, what's, what, what's the problem? They said, well, because we're all going to be marginalized if we say that capitalism is going to be ending. Capitalism is going to be over. You know, uh, we said, but like any other system, it goes through its heydays, and then it starts using itself up. We need to move on and come up with a, some kind of a new hybrid system, which, which comes up with the best characteristics of the various, including capitalism, but, but of all the various systems, sort of the way the Scandinavians have done. And... Um, and others are doing, and we need to do that as well because this system it cannot survive on its current set of um, uh, driving demands and its um, and its unwillingness to to be responsive to the various social and environmental crises of our time, including you know the tremendous um, the tremendous separation in wealth between the upper echelons and the and the ordinary people. We've never had a situation where they have a one percent, ninety-nine percent to this degree before, yeah. and that's built into the system too. 
The longer the system goes on, the more wealth is accumulated at the very top, and the poorer the lower classes become, or the middle classes become. And it's not going to go on anymore because it's going to be, um, we're running out of material to even run that system anymore. So we've got to start talking about it. So I decided, okay, I would do a book which is a kind of a primer. That's what this one really is. It's, it goes into seven major points about capitalism, one by one, and it says, it asks people to suspend their unwillingness to use the word capitalism or think about capitalism, and let's look at growth. Let's look at amorality. Let's look at inequity. Let's look at the way it buys up government. Let's look at the domination of our minds through media. And let's ask if, if the system is making people happy. You know, the rankings within, inside the U.S., which is the laissez-faire capitalism capital of the world, U.S. is doing very poorly compared to other countries in so many very important categories that it's really very important to just at least take time out and consider it. So I wrote a book that I hope people will just just open their minds and just try to imagine what how the system can possibly uh, save the planet. It, it can't. Yeah, definitely. Uh, growth is commonly measured by the GDP. What is wrong with this measurement? Well, it's, it's the whole idea to measure um, growth and to determine the success of the system by the degree of growth is the central problem. Uh, but the measurement standards that we use are also a very big problem. The GDP just may, you know, measures economic activity, any kind of economic activity that takes place where money changes hands in one way or another. And uh, so um, we celebrate, uh, you know, jails. Uh, you know, the privatization of jails adds to GDP. The <coughs> crime, police, all that adds to GDP. Uh, militarism, that adds to GDP. And um, we have to ask whether we need to make some distinctions, whether those are good things. What we really need are standards of measurement. The, what about unpaid labor in, in the household? What about, um, um, you know, one parent staying home and taking care of the children and making the meals and putting in a full day doing that? Um, there's a lot of unpaid labor in our society and a lot of labor which is paid insufficiently. And, and that does not, is not reflected in the GDP at all. So the GDP is a very gross, um, distorted measurement um, of of how well a society is doing. And in fact, we shouldn't be measuring growth at all. The, ultimately, what I talk about later in the book is is the the need to really figure out what a sustainable economy really is. You know, what, what what's the carrying capacity of the planet we live on? You know, how much economic wealth can can we keep pulling out of the planet and expect to survive i mean if and and we're seeing the reactions now in climate change and water depletion and all those things i mentioned earlier and um and and then live within that measurement and live in a what herman daly the great economist herman daly who was at this meeting um speaks of steady state economies that's what we really need we really need an economy that lives within inside the limits of the planet that acts in the public interest not toward private investors, and within a steady state system, that is to say, where we, uh, you know, let's say carrying capacity less 10% so that the planet can survive and everyone gets an equal share, or, or not necessarily an equal share, but everyone can survive within that uh, steady state um, boundary. You'd need a certain amount of redistribution of wealth 
for some people who maybe have too little right now, but they need to have a little bit more. So it takes a certain degree of central planning. This does not mean I'm a communist or a socialist, which I am not. But it means that we have to be willing to look at what kind of hybrid system might be substituted right now, because, you know, otherwise it's apocalypse now, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, I think our you know listeners here are familiar with the work of Noam Chomsky, know what the Britain Woods economic system is. For, mm-hmm. for listeners who don't know, what is it, and how has it impacted our world since the post-World War II era? Well, you know, during the Second World War, the United States converted its economy to a military economy, and um, we, you know, then had to lead the battle against uh, fascism at that point. And then after the war, all the European countries and the American economy were completely out of whack. And so the economists of the world decided to get together, and mainly they were corporate economists, decided to get together and figure out what kind of system um, should we have that will that will maximize growth and that was a and that was the beginnings of what we call globalization now the term was not even very popular until about the 1980s but that was the start of it in the 19 mid 1940s the they built the the world the world bank to control the finances of the economy they built the international monetary fund at that time which con- you know which controlled the rules of the economy and um and um, and other instruments, and decided to that growth was what was required, and globalization was what was required, meaning that countries had to basically subordinate uh, national interest toward growth and corporate toward corporate global growth, and that was the roots of a very accelerated growth that happened in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. But which uh, and did produce uh, a, a, an increase of, of wealth in the planet, and and uh, actually um, the consumer economy was really invented in the 1950s. It was a kind of an advertising idea to really emphasize consumerism in order to increase and expand the economy and uh, increase wealth. But it turned out after a while, as people began to notice in the 60s and 70s, that that wealth increase was going mainly to a very small class of people, and that the societies had to give up a lot of their uh, controls over their um, values, you might say, over uh, you know equality uh, in the workplace and um, uh, uh, environmental standards and social standards and so on, in order to feed all all of the resources to corporations more rapidly, and. And so a movement began to develop in the 80s and 90s against this global system. We, my organization was part of that. It culminated really, or it burst out in the open in, in Seattle in 1999 against the WTO. It kind of, kind of really hurt the WTO. It hasn't really recovered very much since then. But the global economy continues, and it's and it's and it's and it's failing. That is to say, this these social patterns that have developed out of the global economy have left the world in a terrible plutocratic arrangement where there's very few people with enormous amounts of money and then the great the middle classes are decreasing in most places especially the united states and the poorer classes are increasing and the ability of people to get along is is going very down and the and the inequalities are going up and the wealth concentrations are going up and so on and the and the resources are going down so that the globalization model like capitalism itself, 
was successful in its goals for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then it used up its resources, and now Herman Daly's got the right idea. A steady state is what's really required now, and there are a lot of nations ready to talk about that. One of the most frightening points in your book is that the United States at this point is locked into having it one of its only competitive advantages being in producing equipment for war. How do we oh. break free of that cycle? Excuse me? I said one of the most frightening points yeah, in your I book. That, yeah, I heard that. You said, how do, oh, I, yeah. how do we explain that cycle? Well, no, how do we break free of that cycle? Well, how do we break free of that? Yeah. Well, I'm not so sure that the United States can break free of that, because military um, military has become our economy. You know, 47% right now, the last time I looked, of our discretionary spending in the United States is for military. I just came back from traveling. We work a lot in the Pacific in my organization, and I just came back. You know that the United States has 400 military bases in the Pacific. Now, there's no way that we need 400 bases in the Pacific. And they're all being built by Lockheed and Halliburton and all the big industrial, uh, military-industrial um, aspects of our, of our um, country. And it's, it's because that's where we can do it. The, the government can decide to do that. The military has tremendous power in our system. And it's a way that, that the, the capitalist economy can keep growing because we can keep adding bases. Now, the excuse is, well, we've got to defend ourselves against China in the Pacific. China has no bases in the Pacific. The U.S. has, the US has 250 bases in the Pacific that are not on U.S. land. We have several hundred in, in Hawaii and Alaska, but most of it is out all over the Pacific, all the way you know, through Japan and Korea and then in Micronesia and Melanesia and everywhere. And there's no excuse for it. It's just, it's just a way to spend money that makes profit for corporations and employs some people. And um, we need more, ex- you know, China, of course, is building some aircraft carriers, and, and they are increasing their military, but it's nothing like what the U.S. is doing right now. And the, ba- the basis of that is that our economy has, has failed to be able to keep growing in a normal kind of consumer economy fashion, which has declined and is going to continue to decline, and it can't keep growing by, you know, what we call the virtual economy, which is money investing in money, you know, um, derivatives and uh, uh, financial investments that eventually collapse. Um, military economy is a very safe investment uh, in, in a certain way, if, as long as the government goes along with it and the government's willing to put the resources to direct, the, to, to require the resources for for building more ships and planes and drones. and there's, there's two new drone bases being built out in the Pacific right now. Oh, no. One off Australia and a magnificent, fantastic island, the Cocos Islands, and they're going to be destroyed by this military base. And, and uh, so the military economy has become the U.S. economy. So it's, it's, uh, it's terrifying, actually. Yeah. With our previous guest, Neil DeMoss, we were talking about the structural restraints on the mayor of New York City and about whoever who was elected has to placate the powerful interests who actually run the city. You bring up an excellent example of this with Bolivia's president, Evo Morales, who on one hand can give great speeches about protecting Mother Earth, then approve highways through indigenous lands and lithium mining. If even the president is free of these constraints from the market, how does society ever break free? Well, he's, he's not free. You have to be free. Yeah. Of the, you know, what it's going to take, I mean, the book is against capitalism. The book is saying capitalism is over. And I think that capitalism needs, we need to face the fact that capitalism inevitably leads to the very contradiction you're describing that Evo Morales 
is facing. Now, Abel Morales is an indigenous person. You know, he was Bolivia is a majority indigenous uh, population, and they have their the, the primary values among people in Bolivia are completely different from they are in many other parts of the world. <laughs> and they elected him as one of their representatives, and they live in an indigenous manner. And then Morales um, made great progress in praising those people and and even bringing to the United Nations uh, such concepts as the rights of nature and uh, things like that. Very interesting. Um, but then when he got back to Bolivia, he has, a, he has a, 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 a small class of very wealthy people there, too, who have been running their mining economy and their forest economy, that's say cutting down forests, having uh, lithium mines and also oil development in Bolivia, energy development in Bolivia. And they're demanding that they continue to make money or they're going to create a revolution and, um, and put money into military instead and throw them out of, of office. And so he, he has had to kind of try, and you, know, you see with all world leaders now, they have to try to balance, even if they know the right thing, they sort of can't go there because there's too many opposing forces in the country, and so they have to kind of do something that satisfies the satisfies the plutocratic class in their country, or else they're going to have big big other kind of problems. So Morales has tried to walk a treadmill, tried to walk a uh, what do you call it? You know, a, a very rope. thin yeah. tightrope through the you know over this chasm of the majority population and this plutocratic class in his country and um and is trying to do that and it's not working because the people are in revolt now they're not letting these roads get built they're, they're trying to block these mines they're trying to block the, they want to live on the land for the most part in a in a much more sustainable manner in Bolivia it's one of the few countries of the world that actually articulated that purpose for a long time and uh he's probably got and Morales is sort of caught between chairs, you might say. So he's he's. It's very hard for him to know what to do. But eventually, it's gonna it's gonna be realized that without um, that within capitalism, it's gonna be impossible to come up with sustainable long-term solutions that live within the limits of nature and the limits of the planet. And um, we're gonna have to start thinking about uh, evolving toward some other kind of patchwork uh, hybrid system which uh, will, will um, enable us to survive as a, as a people and as a planet. If you're just joining us, you're tuned into the Heather McCoy Show. Our pledge drive is currently going on. We do have someone answering the phones. 949-824-5824 is the number to reach us here and make a donation. You don't hear this kind of talk anywhere else on the commercial or radio dial. And um, so, yeah. So, And then our, if our guest right now is Jerry Mander. He wrote a paper, uh, book called The Capitalism Papers. And uh, going back to the unlimited and ever-increasing uh, growth as measured by the D GDP, one of the main causes of capitalist growth in the last 100 years is cheap oil. Oil, but now we have not only hit peak oil, now we have global warming. The capitalists don't want to curtail the current system. They want to turn to atmospheric engineering to fix a problem. And the scary thing is there's nothing that we can do to stop them because there's no laws in that area. Can you talk about this threat to our environment? Well, uh, um, there's all kinds of uh, green technology solutions being proposed. Um, some of them are okay, and um, uh, many of them are not. Um, uh, that what, what you're t talking about is called geoengineering. Yes. And it means basically remaking the atmosphere. Um, it's sort of like biotechnology, which is remaking the ingredients of plant life. 
There's also another. There's also a, a bio nature movement, which is basically to rebuild nature. That's to say, <laughs> to put nature under corporate control and make a new nature. There's new 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 uh, bioengineered trees which are being developed right now, and um, I mean the whole thing is. Uh, Disgusting, actually. Uh, I, I just came from a meeting actually last week, uh, Global Exchange, uh, and, and we combined formed had a meeting um, on um, what was called the rights of nature. This is a movement that hasn't really generated much interest so far, but I think will generate interest in the near future when we realize that nature, that you know, nature is everything. Everything you know, everything people are listening to the radio right now, they should look around their room. And see that every single thing in their room and every piece of clothes they're wearing and their shoes and their car, and they're all made out of nature. Everything is made out of nature. It, it, nature is the source, and nature is, you know, the walls are made out of nature, the clothes are made out of nature, and, you know, nature is everything. And we've completely lost track of that. Right now, it's nature is just something we exploit, and that turns into our commodities. But if nature is not in a healthy state, forget about it. The game is over, as Bill McKibben likes likes to say. Yeah. And these and these solutions like geoengineering are basically remaking nature. It's making a new nature. Geoengineering is putting uh, particles in the atmosphere that will uh, reduce the amount of sunlight that will get on the planet and theoretically reduce global warming. We have no idea what other effects that would have. It'll probably kill life in the seas. It will, you know, making interfering with the rays of nature, with the sunlight from nature, is like a really bad idea. All you know, whole economies, whole cultures, and countries are based upon the balance of between human life and nature, and it's a ridiculous thing to even contemplate. Biotechnology um, and the uh, remaking of our food by such companies as Monsanto and Cargill and so on, there is a very big movement developing about that. I, I presume you, in Southern California, many people are very aware of that. And, and it is a huge movement developing around that, and I think it's showing some signs of success. It would have been, there was this vote in California not too long ago about whether a GMO products should be labeled, and the, the, about a month before the vote, the, the, the public voted something like two, the public was polled as like two to one in favor of that, a product labeling, which they have all over Europe and all over India and many parts of the world. It's very sensible that people should know what's in their food. And then the, then the corporations came along, Monsanto and others came along and put, I think it was $40 million into an advertising campaign and won by air. That's going to come back and be voted on again. And it's, and it's already been voted on in Maine and Connecticut, and they've demanded that the packages be labeled. It's about to be voted on in Washington State and demanding packages be labeled. And I think there is a growing... When people get aware of some of these things, they do gather momentum and vote, and vote, vote on the matter. And I think that's going to happen with biotech. I, I do believe that um, uh, GMO foods will be eventually require at least labeling, if not being banned. And I think slowly the movement um, that's developing against climate change will get involved in some of this activity also. I know Bill McKibben is the leader of 350.org. He's a good friend of mine, and I think he's very optimistic that eventually we will be able to make laws that 
affect these kind of false solutions that are so much upon us now. Yeah, we're just kind of wrapping up right now, but um, the reason why most Americans don't know about these threats for survival, as you say, they don't know about it, um, due to the very lackluster commercial media system that has gotten worse with consolidation in 1996. Uh, Is there any way to inject these ideas in the mainstream discourse to reverse the dangerous path that we're going down? Well, that's what we're trying to do right now, um, (laughs) Heather, and I think there are plenty of other people who are trying to do that, and uh, there's there's a lot of energy developing around that, and um, I, I, there's a great organization called Center for Food Safety, which has been working very, very hard on, on that aspect of it. I, I think that what's really necessary, I mean, you're right that the, that the commercial media system is completely dominated by a very small, you know, globally speaking, seven, seven corporations own about 75% of global media. I mean, it's hidden because a lot of the corporations that may own a local radio station are, are different than the, the the major corporation that owns that owns a lot of these, uh, but it's the degree of concentration has never been greater than it is now, and thank God for NPR and um, nonprofit radio because that's the only place where we can move some of these things out. But I think I think I, I, don't, I don't think commercial media is going to be very responsive until there are a lot of people on the street and a lot of big votes taking place and that kind of activity. But. We've got to keep plugging anyway because it's very important. And, and getting acquainted with the ingredients of capitalism, I think, is really important for people to, to see why it's going this way. What do you see if we just don't do anything at all? What if we just sit on our rears and just uh, do nothing? I don't think it's even possible for that to happen because things are going to get so bad. You know, the, 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 the feedback from nature is going to be so negative. Climate change is already, you know, these big new storms that are coming along and and the running, people running out of water. A lot of parts of the world are already running out of water because of the melting of the of the, um, of the Arctic and so on, and the rising seas. I and mean, there's going to be a kind of reaction from nature, uh, as well as uh, the, the the middle class being driven down and the people not having enough to eat. And I mean, I just think that we're we're ten or twenty years away from a really almost apocalyptic um, outcome. And uh, that's going to cause reaction. I don't think there's a question of just sitting around. People people may do that until it hits them personally, but it will hit them personally. Yeah. So it's really important that everybody become very, very knowledgeable and aware. If we do nothing, I don't know if you read Chris Hedges' articles on at Truth Dig, but he, he, mm-hmm. what do you think about the Christian Dominionists taking over if we absolutely do nothing and then, um, you know, liberalism or, you know, the state doesn't take care of people and then they just see their pathway through God? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not too—I don't think that necessarily will happen. I, I do think that—I um, think Chris is maybe a little bit uh, reaching on that one, but— um, uh, I, I I do think that it's really necessary for people to get to get acquainted and knowledgeable and active. Oh, definitely. Well, thanks for being on the show, uh, Jerry Mander. He wrote the uh, book Capitalism Papers, and it's uh, a f- fatal flaws in an obsolete si- obsolete system. Do you want to leave with any thoughts or parting shots or anything? Well, I'm very grateful for you. I'll just tell you that, uh, Heather. I think that uh, this is it's been fun to talk to you, and I think that that. These kind of programs and talking to other uh, activists is extremely important. I, I, I am not um, pessimistic. I'm by nature not pessimistic, and I do think that people will want to know the things they need to know, and um, uh, and that eventually we'll see a turnaround. It may it may be uh, a few dark days between here and there. Oh, definitely, Jerry Mander. Thanks for being on the show, and we'll maybe talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Okay, this Bye-bye. is the Heather McCoy show.